Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. This year, in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the Engendered Collective hosted a series of community conversations to bring greater awareness to domestic abuse and gender-based violence. Today's conversation deals with the intersection of domestic violence, systemic gender bias against protective mothers and family court, child abuse, and trauma. I'm very happy that all of you are joining us today for our community conversation on domestic violence and child abuse in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. This is one of five community conversations that we've been scheduling every Friday this month as a way to help build awareness of the issues that our community of survivors, advocates, and pro-feminist allies are working on and that are important to us. So a little bit about the Engendered Collective before we get started and the conversation that we're having today, as well as the ones that we have been having. So we put together these community conversations um, so that we can provide an opportunity for our members, our survivors and advocates and practitioners who are working in the field to come together and share our experiences, share our expertise, our ideas, and be a source of hopefully inspiration uh, and discovery for the attendees and this call. We want to emphasize that these conversations that we're having, especially if I'm representing a particular opinion on a policy, they are not definitive. We are open to uh, solving problems and being open to new ideas, but we might be very strong and firm in our positions on particular policy areas at the moment. Um, And so the idea is that this conversation, as well as the podcast and the other areas of our organization are there to help provide a blueprint for addressing abuse in our society. Uh, So for the agenda for today, we'll cover all aspects of what was in the posted agenda, which includes um, what it's like to navigate the court system as a survivor, uh, how it impacts the children that we have, and some abuser tactics that are used and how they use systems to discredit abuse and child abuse and child sexual abuse. So with that, we are going to get started. It looks like one of our panelists, Annabelle, survivor Annabelle, has still not been able to join us. So we're going to get started without her. We have right now three guests, Anita Guerra, a protective mom from Great Britain, whose kids live with their father in the United States. You may have seen in your registration link that there was an episode in our podcast that delves more deeply into the details of her case. The next is Courtney, a protective mom. Uh, she That is a pseudonym for her, so she is not um, revealing her identity. She is currently in court, and if you want to learn more about her story, we just released an episode uh, interviewing her yesterday for the podcast. And finally, we have Roz Davidson, a uh, director of the Positive Parenting Company and consultant coming to us from Great Britain. So we're just going to get started without the introductions, just to save time because we have so many questions and topics that we want to cover. 
So to dive into this, I want to address the term, which is protective mother, and what that means. And I'm going to ask Anita and Courtney to both respond. So let's start with Anita. What is a protective mother for the attendees who have never heard of that term? Okay. Hi, Terry, and thank you very much for giving us this opportunity for our voices to be heard and to address these important issues. A protective mother, I believe, is just about any mother in the world, really. Any mother who's put into a situation where her children are in danger is going to do everything she can to protect her children from harm. It's as simple as that. It's across um, all species, all mothers try to protect their infants. Human beings are no different. When our children are threatened by risk, whoever or whatever it's from, we will fight and do our best to make sure they are not harmed, whether that is physically, emotionally, psychologically, however it might be. There are so many different forms of abuse. So in a nutshell, protective mother is every mother, any mother who does her best to make sure her children do not suffer harm. Thank you, Anita. And Courtney, what about you? What is the protective mother to you and what are some of the behaviors and symptoms and what are you protecting your your child from? Thank you, Terry. And it, it, it's similar to what Anita shared. Um, specifically, you know, in my situation, it was being a protective mother in the marriage um, and sensing it was time to get out in order to protect a child. And then it continues and visually gets larger and larger as one navigates the family law system in order to continue to protect their child from the abuser, which is typically your ex-husband. And that sort of expands upon itself through the years of, you know, numerous filings in the court in order to financially drain you, physical, emotional uh, abuse towards the child, sex abuse towards the child, um, anything in the dynamic that intentionally is to hurt not only the child, but the mother who is trying to protect. So I want to go uh, to Roz now. In the work that you do, if you can briefly describe it, what are some of the most common ways that exposure to an abusive parent manifests itself in behaviors in the children? Thanks, Terry, and thanks for having me as well today. So I am a national consultant, and I also work uh, as a, a domestic abuse consultant within Lewisham. And the main work that I focus on is children and women in recovery from domestic abuse. So once a separation has occurred, I think talking about protective mums is often perceived that women are not protecting their children uh, when there's a harmful relationship. And, you know, that's a that's a real misconception that we really need to address because as Anita and Courtney both demonstrated, it's a natural instinct for us to protect our children. So the work I do is a 12-week uh, program where we work with children that have experienced abuse alongside their mothers so that their mothers can support the children in recovery. And we see varying you know, impacts on children from behaviour to belief systems to, you know, physiological um, difficulties as well. A lot of children may be suffering with disorders or being diagnosed with disorders 
And often those disorders like um, ADHD are very much impacted by potentially that they're actually traumatized. So again, the, the signs that we look for in the children can be very similar to something that maybe clinically is diagnosed as a disorder when actually we're often dealing with, you know, a traumatized child or, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, the, the children often don't have either the language or they're too frightened to speak out about it. So this program that we offer gives children and mothers an opportunity to explore those um, experiences post separation and help to address some of those beliefs that children may start to form as a result of being um, experiencing domestic abuse and uh, the abuser choosing to harm the mother or the children. Um, so that's really what we do. And we do that on a local level in Lewisham. So we've got uh, a lot of work that we're doing there, but also on a national level, I train professionals um, to deliver this to work with women and children in recovery. So just to be clear, Roz, you're working with women and children in particular who are still being exposed to abuse. So they still, they're not being exposed? Post-abuse. Post-abuse. Okay. Um, So they... Recovery. So do you have any opportunity to work with children who are being exposed at all? We, I have previously, yes. I mean, a lot of the work I do now is in either a preventative mode or recovery because at the point of crisis, there's so much chaos that actually what those children often need and in all circumstances is really a confidential and safe, trusted adult to be able to talk to and check in with. And at the point of chaos, often, as we might know ourselves, it's very hard to make sense of what is happening at that point. So the work that we do, like I said, would I'd rather get to children before or after, preferably before, so that it doesn't happen at all and educating them around, you know, what healthy relationships are and understanding what abuse is. Because something that I often say is, how do you know what abuse is? Uh, if you, if you, how do you know what's happening to you if you don't know what abuse is? So the educational side of the work is is really important here. Okay, so I'd like to turn back to the survivors um, and protective moms. So Anita, can you just to follow up on what Roz was saying about helping children either before or after um, exposure to abuse? What was it like for you? as a protective mom in managing your children's symptoms, for example, of trauma or uh, manifestations of behavioral or Roz referred to behavior, belief systems, and physiological symptoms. So what was it like to manage those? What were they, what were those symptoms um, while your children were still being exposed? Well, unfortunately, Terry, as, as you're aware, my children are suffering from post-separation abuse as well because they have been taken away from me, their mother, and I haven't seen them for over five years. So I can only imagine the trauma that they're going through. But to get back to your question, while I was with them pretty much as a single mother for the first um, eight years or so of their lives, I did notice signs of abuse. I didn't recognise those signs of abuse at the time. I was completely unaware, naive if you like. I, I had no idea, no information, no education about what abuse constituted. 
So I didn't recognize the signs. It was only when we were in a safe place, we left the United States and came back to the UK and spent over a year here where we lived in a town close to very close to family members. They saw their grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, went to wonderful schools, um, got involved in extracurricular activities, were allowed to go and talk to the school nurse, which would be in the United States, a school counsellor. And here it's a school nurse. So they had a lot of support and backup. They opened up and they blossomed. All the little signs of clinginess, bedwetting that went on for many, many years, that stopped. The clinginess stopped. My daughter had been afraid of the proverbial saying, boo to a goose. She ended up going to drama classes and getting up on stage and singing on her own. She absolutely blossomed. Um, Both children did. So... The trauma is there. The signs are there. It's just that we don't always know what we're looking for and not what we're looking at. And I think that's that's really a shame. We need more education so that we do recognise the signs of abuse. Um, and then when children are, as Ros was saying, post-separation, for everybody, the abuse doesn't stop. It carries on for too many people, far too many. I'm not alone in that. I know there are too many mothers who are trying to be as protective as we can for our children, but we are denied the opportunity. So you you seem to be describing, Anita, uh, issues of attachment disorders yeah. um, in terms of the neediness and the clinginess mm-hmm. yes. and regressive behaviors like the bedwetting you were saying. So when a child reaches a certain milestone um, going back in time in, mm-hmm. um, in age, of what they had learned and and losing that skill. And what about in terms of their functioning at school, for example, like were they able to um, meet their academic milestones? Were there any noticeable signs that professionals in the school shared with you that they were concerned about? Not at all. They excelled at school in just about every subject. They both read voraciously, my daughter loved maths as well, or math as you call it in the US. Sums, she would go to bed with sums rather than a book very often. They really did very, very, very well at school, straight A students, as you would say in the US. But from what I understand from reading people like, for example, Dr. Jessica Taylor, who's written so much about abuse, it's one thing that children can control, isn't it? Their performance at school, that is one thing that is absolutely within their control. Are they going to do well? Are they going to do badly? And very often that is the only thing which they have real power over. So I don't know, my children did very, very well at school always, and they're still doing very, very well at school. And a lot of people say they're healthy, they're doing so well at school, they're obviously very happy, everything's fine. Why are you concerned? Why am I concerned? I'm their mother. I haven't seen them for over five years. That would concern any mother. Yes, and I'm glad you brought up the academic um, performance because there's a myth as you said, that if children perform well in school, if they're excelling, that mm-hmm. must mean they're not being abused. And exactly. I've heard that being used as an excuse to describe my own child as well. Um, and mm-hmm. and yet, if you think about it, you can argue, well, everybody who's at like a top Ivy League school, if they've excelled so well, there should be no abuse in any of those cases. And yet, of course, abuse still is ubiquitous and rampant right throughout society. And so it is actually a symptom for a child to look to academics as a way to control their environment, like you said, and excel. And that's actually a trauma symptom. So we wanted, I wanted to share that. So thank you. Okay. So let's go to Courtney. Uh, Your 
son is um, much younger. And you described in our conversation different physiological symptoms. I'm wondering if you can delve into that. And and just before you do so, uh, let me just uh, let the... um, uh, audience know that there's going to be, um, if as a trigger warning, there's going to be some very descriptive words used um, that's going to address child sexual abuse. So, Courtney, if you can talk about that. Thanks, Terry. I would say that the first symptoms or red flag were, well, it was the first time that I received the threat of that there would be consequences. And it was soon after that with the head injuries and raw looking testicles and more head injuries. And then another significant domestic violence situation against me while, while I was actually holding the, my son. And for a time there was supervised parenting because as you've heard in my story, father felt the need to open up about a past sexual child, sexual assault on a four-year-old girl. Um, that he was never charged for. But then eventually, through the family law system, with what we call final orders, all of that was just thrown out the door. And that judge ordered unsupervised parenting. And that's when the problems really began. He would be returned with red, raw rashes uh, around his genitals and um, started to wet himself, not just bedwetting. This would be five, six times a day, just peeing and screaming at himself for why he was peeing. And, and then the behavioral stuff, of, you know, getting into a ball and in the corner under a table, not eating. And then in time, I think by the age of five, you know, he had, he had expressed to his therapist what was happening and um, you know, and not in complete sentences. It was more of just words and but words that showed obvious signs that something significantly wrong was happening. And then at the age of five, he was diagnosed with PTSD, separation anxiety, and generalized anxiety. And and now here we are with these diagnoses and the father's parenting time being increased. Uh, more significantly to overnights, as well as extended summers and holidays. The PTSD, has the trauma isn't stopping. And that's what's so difficult is that we can't, we can do therapy and do therapy and do as much as we can. But with the trauma continuing, it's sort of different than Roz's situation is that the trauma hasn't stopped. And that's what makes it so difficult for him to participate in school. Just last week, uh, the blood curdling screams at the door were so traumatic for him. And the adults there at the school, I think it took two adults to actually physically remove him from my leg in order to find a way to calmly get him into school that wasn't triggering his his anxiety and PTSD. So for that us that are in the situation where the court continues to order, you know, these young children to go back to these situations, 
it's it's the long term concerns that as a mom you have and you know you have since you know these overnight parenting um weekends began 6 weeks ago and in the past during the unsupervised parenting there were 12 reports made by medical professionals and just in the last 5 weeks top hospitals in the state as well as the school there's six more calls to CPS and nothing. It's crickets, as we say. And uh, child set to go back, you know, in a week. So thank you, uh, Courtney. Annabelle joined us. And we are just going to give you an opportunity, Annabelle, survivor Annabelle, to address the question we posed, which is, how has child abuse, child sexual abuse, or witnessing domestic violence in your children manifested as symptoms in in your children? Has it impacted them in terms of their physiology, their uh, belief systems, or behaviors? My children are older. Uh, One is 13 and one is 11. And they are both aware that what their father is doing to them is abuse. They try to not let him get to him. I mean, not let him get to them, but their trauma manifests in physical symptoms. You know, my daughter has the, where she picks at scabs on her head and my, my son has difficulty sleeping, falling asleep. He has nightmares. And until, you know, he, I hate to, well, he, he did have problems. You know, he continued to wet the bed until he was eight years old, which is kind of late. And so they have more physical symptoms. Thank you, Annabelle. And, you know, I'm happy to pose this to any of the survivors if you would like to answer with regard to external support. So whether it's therapists, doctors, teachers, et cetera, if they also, any of those individuals, professionals who've worked with your children or interact with your children, observed and validated that there was abuse and to what extent that actually helped or hindered or had no effect on your case to uh, credit that there was abuse. If you want to just raise your hand in the <laughs> below, <laughs> I'm happy to call on you. Okay, why don't I go to Courtney? In terms of the external support, you, you've mentioned med- many, many uh, medical professionals who validated their concerns. Yes, um, it was pediatricians, it was teachers, therapists, um, and other doctors that were related to skincare who all made various reports. And there was one day I got a phone call from a CPS worker who you know, had a relationship with the father for close to 20 years. And she said to me on the phone, oh, so you're going to get these bigger hospitals now to get make them make reports. And, and I'll just never forget that the, the feeling that came with that of not only invalidating my son's suffering, but to think that a mother could go to an extent of doing something that could actually harm their child. In, when, when, when you're dealing with the situation, it's such an extreme of the crying and the pleading and the begging to not go and, and to have that just thrown in your face. You know, and and that's sort of where the pattern has has continued is that that 
the more medical professionals that seem to say, hey, we're concerned here, you know, we don't know, quote unquote, what's going on, but we think it's this. And, and, and they're very hesitant to label the father because they can be sued or, or whatnot. But uh, that ends up coming back to the mother um, as something that, you know, you're coming up with, um, even if it's a medical professional, even if you've never once yourself have ever made a report uh, of your own concerns. Anita or Annabelle, would you like to respond as well? Yeah, sure. Um, my children didn't have any reports from the US before we came back to the United Kingdom because we didn't talk to anyone about anything that was happening in the home. When we came to the UK and felt we were safe, they did open up to their school counsellor, school nurse. They saw a social worker at my request who took, talked to them individually. Um, we had reports about the abuse. They talked about how hard their father would beat them, for example. Um, but when it came to court, we in the UK, we have something called CAFCAS, which is like kind of social services for children and families to represent them in court. We had a um, an officer who interviewed my children for one hour and went to the judge and said he recommended that these American children be returned to their American father. My children were born in Germany. They have German and British and American citizenship. There's nothing that makes them uniquely American and nothing else. But after we returned to the United States, they they were not allowed to see a counsellor. I did call CPS. A CPS um, gentleman visited them at home with their father because they were taken away from me after 72 hours, of, within 72 hours of getting to the United States. And he said they were with their father. They were happy with their father. That was it. I tried to take them to a counsellor. He forbade it. I wasn't allowed to take them again. They arranged to see their school counsellor at their new school in the United States. After they saw him once, my daughter went home and said to her father, I saw this lovely lady. This is her name. Her father got in touch with the school and said, the school counsellor is not allowed to talk to my children. And that was that. And this was when I could still see them. And she came to me and said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have told dad that I saw the school counsellor. I just didn't think she was eight years old. And she knew that she shouldn't have told her father because then he stopped it. So there's no help. There's no support. And too many children are in that situation where they have no trusted adult to turn to. There is no support. When there is, the courts don't listen. Just as Courtney was saying about her poor child. Annabelle, is there something you'd like to add to this? Um, yes. So my in my case, my children's pediatrician actually recently called CPS to report my ex for not allowing the children to see therapists and for withholding ADHD medication from my son. And um, you know, so we now have a social worker involved in our case again. And from hearing all the stories and from my past experience with CPS, I'm worried, you know, I'm not the one who called CPS. I tried to downplay, you know, he continues to abuse them physically and emotionally, psychologically. I tried to downplay that portion and just keep it focused <laughs> on the fact that he's refusing to let the kids see a therapist in order for them to get medication. And, um, but I am concerned. It scares me how the social worker might twist it around on me or how he might twist it around on me. So, you know, each of you, all of the survivors have addressed uh, different ways in which people in the system that you've encountered, bystanders effectively 
have not really stepped up to help the children. And I wanted to um, now turn to this concept that abusers have basically codified over the past 30, 40 years um, almost, um, these disinformation tactics, uh, information warfare that we refer to called, quote unquote, parental alienation or parental alienation syndrome and and how that plays a role in your case. Um, and, and to the attendees, we will be sending a link at the end of the conversation with an article that addresses this that we just came out prior to this community conversation. But the idea is that abusers through the father's supremacist movement, which is part of the male supremacist movement, they have been able to frame the narrative and take the domestic violence myths that are still very widespread in our society and use it against survivors and protective moms so that when they are trying to leave a relationship and they encounter a system, whether it's the criminal justice system, the family court system, and like Annabelle was in, in, in uh, the other two survivors were saying, possibly the child welfare system, the effort to seek help and engage in protective behavior is pathologized and called out as something that's used against them in a way where the protective behavior is quote unquote considered alienating and used to call uh, or characterize the uh, trauma symptoms of the child potentially, which may you know be in refusing contact with the abusive parent or exhibiting anxiety and other forms of emotional responses, um, that that response that's justified is then blamed on the protective mother. And so this is actually a cottage industry that's been developed over the past, like I said, 30, 40 years, where mental health professionals, judges, as well as lawyers are being trained and getting continuing ed credit uh, for for, um, believing in this disinformation tactic. So I'm going to turn to Annabelle first, because I know you know a lot about this. Could you talk about the um, institutionalization of this tactic against survivors? How has it shown up, for example, in organizations such as the AFCC, et cetera? Okay, yeah. So I'm I'm in Maryland where we the AFCC has a very, very strong presence. They train the best interest attorneys. They also provide domestic violence training for the judges, attorneys, social workers. And, um, you know, in my case, we were appointed six different paid experts, basically, to help us, quote unquote. And it ended up costing us like $500,000, half a million dollars that these people took, supposedly serving my children's best interest while taking all of their college funds and our savings And, you know, from the very beginning, we had a reunification therapist who was AFCC. And, you know, I didn't realize at the time that when you have a reunification therapist appointed, the outcome is baked in. You've already been tried and found guilty of parental alienation. And so it really doesn't matter what the evidence is, what the laws are, what the facts are. You're already guilty of parental alienation. And they're going to try to take as much custody from you as possible. The reunification therapist, in my case, only met me four times. And she recommended that I only have visitation, even though my ex was pretty much uninvolved with our kids. 
you know, I, I did everything. And for complaining about abuse, she was going to take custody from me. I was going to be reduced to visitation. Um, so, fortunately, so, the judge didn't go along with it. So just we didn't um, actually define what the AFCC was for our attendees? It's the Association of Family... Oh, and I always forget. Okay, it's conciliation. Conciliation, <laughs> right? Yes. It basically this organization that masquerades as a professional organization, and they're global for some reason. They tout themselves as a global international organization, which makes no sense because family law is local. It's determined in the United States on a state level. So why would a family court organization be global? You know, that makes no sense to me. And they have judges, attorneys, psychologists, therapists, social workers, all as members of this organization. You know, it's just a breeding ground for corruption. And when you look at the money involved, that is what's happening. It's racketeering. So I'm glad you brought that up, the racketeering aspect. So the some people might not know what that means. Um, could you define that and, and, and describe sort of the money relationship? between the different players? Sure. It's racketeering is basically collusion or conspiracy to commit fraud. And that is what they're doing. Like in my case, one expert would refer another expert. You know, they would see the abuse going on and they would say, oh, well, we, we just can't tell what's happening here. You know, there's too much, there's too much fog or, you know, it's just a very confusing situation when really it wasn't. We need to have this other expert involved. And then this other expert would say, well, we need to have this other person involved. And pretty soon we had six people involved, all charging a lot of money. You know, we had a psych evaluator who needed to be paid 20,000, you know, to see us for six sessions, 20,000. That's a huge amount of money. And she falsified her report. We had a um, parent coordinator who charged $300 an hour and didn't do anything. And, um, you know, that is, they basically colluded. And they don't really need to get together and say anything. It's already systemic. Right. So it's already in the system. So just for our listeners who are new to this, there's um, not any accountability for the most part across all the states in terms of these expert people who are attached to the cases, whether they're custody evaluators or attorneys for children or guardians at litem, they are appointed by the players who are in existence already. Um, There's a a fixed pool of them generally. They're not required to have any kind of background, including understanding domestic violence, child abuse, or trauma and its um, symptoms. And and like uh, Annabelle said, they do charge a lot of money and if you are the moneyed party, which is usually in the, in the case you know, of our society because of gender inequities, financial inequities, it's usually going to be the father, then they're going to have a disadvantage. They're going to have an advantage that continues on throughout. So I want to turn now to Roz in England. The work that you do, uh, you talked about um, seeing behavior changes, belief systems. Could you talk about the the workshops that you have with the children and the before and after? What kind of belief systems and behaviors they had prior to the workshops? And then, you know, how long the workshops are? What are the topics that you address in the workshops? And then what happens, um, what you're seeing after the workshops? And 
Uh, I mean, first, I'd just like to raise that actually, although the families are in recovery, the children will very well be still having contact with their part, their their dad. So again, we do see escalations. We do look out for changes or things that children obviously might bring to the groups. So again, you know, even though they are in recovery in terms of separation has occurred, we know that separation is kind of one of the key indicators and where um, abuse will escalate or actually it starts to be perpetrated by using those children. So we're very aware of that with the work that we do. And it's really important to remember that I think Anita said it, you know, it, it isn't short term. Once it ends, you the abuse doesn't end. It often escalates and the children become the focus by either becoming a tool or, you know, often, obviously, if they're having contact, there'll be things happening in the other home that, again, you know, being questioned, for example, by the ex-partner or the father. So what I can say from um, my experiences of working with many, many children and assessing children is they are very much affected by what is happening and they are frightened. So, again, often that the fear of speaking out means that, again, the survivors here have said lots of services become involved, lots of people. And, you know, these children are frightened because often they will attribute what's happening to themselves. So when we think about the developmental stages that children go through and at the point of impact, if this abuse continues over several developmental um, stages, again, the impact in the long term can be far more complex Because, you know, physiologically and obviously in terms of our brains and how they develop, children start to develop their belief system at the age of six. So if a child has been exposed to abuse from utero, because we know it affects women in pregnancy, up until that point, this abuse, it becomes normal to the children. And, you know, obviously they don't talk about it because of the fear. And for the women, it becomes normal. Because we're not talking to anybody else about it for fear of consequence. So in our groups, what we do very much is look at abuse. So we have a whole session where we actually teach children what abuse is. And that includes sexual abuse as well. Because again, how do you know what's happening to you if you don't know what it is? And because it becomes normalised and and, and often um, you know, straddles many developmental stages again the belief system is is this is what happens in our home this is how men treat women this is what dad does this is what mum does so so to address the to address the changes the assessments after the workshops how do you assess what the changes are so we do a pre and post assessment on these groups and basically at the beginning we assess them and ask them their beliefs So should a mum get hit if she does something wrong? Um, Is it my fault? Do I think I'm to blame? Um, And then we also ask them about would they try to stop what we call with children the hurting and fighting. So those are the kind of, you know, real indicators for us. And at the end, we ask them the same questions. And what this programme time and time again is doing is actually changing beliefs because that's what abuse is about. You know, we we mustn't forget it's not about behaviour. Anybody can change their behaviour, 
it's about what you believe and that is a far more difficult thing to address with you know particularly our children where it has become a normalized so we do look at feelings we look at safety planning we look at grief we look at loss we look at family changes you know we talk about anger we talked about result resolving conflict every single week we'll address an area where the, the children have been impacted by abuse so um just to summarize i had seen a presentation that you gave with the data that basically showed that almost 100% of the children following these workshops shifted their belief system so that they were not engaging in self-blame. They put the accountability and ownership of the bad behavior onto the perpetrator, not to the victim. And I think that's very significant. So I wanted to make sure that everybody was aware that that, that yeah, you were doing this work. Terry. Um, I think also very, very important to address is the mother-bond relationship that is is impacted by abuse. Obviously, while in the relationship and once separated, you know, those are the things around attachment that you mentioned earlier. You know, a lot of these children have an insecure attachment. The world is not a safe place. You know, nobody's there for me because, you know, they're constantly having to fend for themselves during those times of abuse that might be happening. So, you know, children are impacted and and children and women need support to be able to navigate and, you know, these situations that continue after the separation, if not escalates even more so. Thank you. So I'd like to turn now to Courtney. And you, you mentioned you want to follow up, but I also have a specific question for you with regard to course of control. So for the listeners on in this conversation who have not heard of the term course of control has been discussed in our previous conversations. It was something that it's it's actually our first interview in the podcast. And it's basically a way to describe holistically the set of behaviors that a perpetrator engages in on a victim, usually a man on a woman under patriarchy, where there's a sense of male entitlement to have power over. And it's considered by uh, forensic social worker Evan Stark, who wrote a whole book about it and and research on it. Uh, It's considered to be a gendered liberty crime, where it's not about what someone does to another, but what someone keeps the other from for doing for herself. So with regard to course of control, um, PAS has been often, parental alienation term has been often used to describe these trauma reactions of children and some of the behaviors of the protective parent. But in uh, response to a call for listener stories and experiences, we had several listeners write in about how coercive coercive control shows up in their relationship with their, usually the father, their abuser, in using the children. And so this is the part where I'd like Courtney to address, which is the different ways, and I'm going to read what the listener wrote, um, which you can see more detail on our Instagram page. And then you could feel free to address the ones that I know applies to you, Courtney. Um, One of them is refusing to agree to a time and place to return children after visitation as a form of coercive control behaving recklessly with the children's medical needs. And then then the example given was making children ill, over-medicating, knowingly exposing children to avoidable illnesses so that they can miss out on school, uh, minimizing or denying child's medical conditions, et cetera. So can you address that? Um, Because you shared a very potent example in our conversation, Courtney, about the skin 
reaction and what, what your uh, ex did. Um, and this continues uh, probably more extreme, but for, for years, my, you know, it's been known that my uh, son has had severe eczema. And so there's a very disciplined routine in order to protect him because he's allergic to trees and grass and weeds uh, and pets. And the father has openly testified, you know, that he doesn't believe in the doctor's orders and that uh, the son, his son is fine. He, you know, the mother is making up these medical conditions and that he doesn't need to follow the doctor's orders. And that was, you know, in a defense of numerous photos that had been shown to the courts of uh, a child being returned after three hours with severe rashes and blisters and only exposed to certain areas, particularly the buttocks at the genitals. And soon after the child was diagnosed with an allergy to cats, the father would um, bring cats onto his visitation in the car and, you know, have the four-year-old child actually pet the cats and tell him that he wasn't allergic to cats, that that was mom saying that he was allergic to cats. And in time, you know, he would come home and I would have to take photos of, you know, recorders of his body covered in hives. Um, and then just recently, because the court did order the child to go and stay at the father's home where there's two cats and a dog, even though this child has these severe allergies. And so as an example, because the child now is able to verbalize the narratives of what's happening, he has to have these soaking baths for um, eczema. And you know, it has to be time limited. He has to, his skin has to absorb this water for at least 10 minutes, no longer than 20. And then everything has to be sealed with certain creams within three minutes. So one weekend, he put my son in an inch of water, which obviously isn't meeting the medical need and doesn't put cream on. And, you know, and then for my now six-year-old, he, he comes home and he's concerned. You know, he says, I'm itchy and I'm congested and, you know, look at my skin, mama. And, you know, and so then we have to do steroids and extra steroids to try to recover. In some visitations, he gets no baths at all. And so that, that's one form of coercive control in his medical needs. He you know, that he's supposed to have weekends at a certain location. And so because of my financial situation and inability to go to family court any longer, he takes the child out of state for a weekend, you know, a child who's already struggling in school and, you know, doesn't tell me, doesn't inform me, and then changes the location and the time of the pickup. You know, and it's all this form of control and trying to make me think that he has the child as his possession and there's nothing that I can do about it, which you know, generally I can't. So those are just, you know, particular examples that are, you know, more recent than just the last month. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to turn to Anita now. Some of the other examples that this uh, listener wrote in about was uh, as a form of course of control against both the survivor and the children is threatening court or police or child welfare action, um, especially if you know that there is no substance to these actions. Another example is making children feel guilty over their contact choices, so either showing affection towards the protective parent or animals or et cetera. 
And and so I know both of these things happened to you, Anita, um, with regard to the use of the Hague Convention and your um, children's uh, willingness or you know inconsistent willingness, I should say, in in maintaining contact with you digitally, even though they are allowed to, but not doing so anyway. Um, that's right. And I, I'd like to just say as well that, Courtney, what you were saying just resonated so deeply with me. And I'm so sorry for you. I know what it's like. I've um, My daughter has a peanut allergy and her father doesn't believe it. So I know what it's like when you're afraid for the, the very health of your child and, and whether they'll survive their allergies. But yes, what you were saying, Terry, my children, the family court judge, ordered that we should maintain our relationship and um, that I should have visitation, which unfortunately, financially, I'm unable to to do. Uh, Their father refused to let them visit me, so I've got to find the money to go to the US. When I first came back to the UK without my children, they did not want to speak to me on the telephone at all or on Skype, have any video contact. I was only away for four weeks before I went back to the US to spend the summer with them. That was the last time I saw them. And during that period, my son would say to me, I don't want you to come back. Um, I just want to be with dad. I don't want to see you. I don't know why you're coming back. I don't want to see you anyway. Don't, I don't want to spend my summer with you. And I would just say, well, I understand. And you will be with your father because you will be living only with him from now on. I'm just going to have this summer with you just a, a few days every week. My daughter was counting the days. When I got to see my children again, My son, who at that stage was 10 years old, the minute he walked into the house where I'd rented a couple of rooms, he grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let go. And the whole evening while I was trying to prepare supper for them, my daughter was sitting with a book and she pointed it out. She said, hey, you kept saying you didn't even want to see mum and now you won't even let her go. You won't physically let go. I had a few weeks with them every night. We had to all be in the same bed if it was a big enough bed. If it was twin beds... I had to split the night 50-50 very exactly. Otherwise, there would be arguments in the morning about mum spend an extra five minutes in your bed. No, you had an extra five minutes. It was very, very strangely clingy behavior at that point for a eight and a 10-year-old who, on the one hand, were saying they didn't want to see me at all and then wouldn't let go. Once I did return to the UK again, I had almost no contact with them for a couple of years. Although I phoned, they never got to hear the messages that I left on the answering machine. They didn't have laptops or computers for their own Skype or anything like that. It's only recently that I've been able to resume contact and I have better contact with my daughter, who's younger. But my son is now starting to speak to me occasionally as well. But I see that there is a lot of fear in talking to me. There's a lot of fear in telling me about their lives if I say things like, what did you do for your birthday? What are you going to do about this? My daughter's usual response is, oh, I don't remember. And I say, okay, all right. You don't remember. That's fine. You don't remember what you did yesterday. That's okay. You don't have to tell me. But it is really scary. And when I hear stories about how they went abroad and my daughter was left all day on a beach in a foreign country on her own because her father and brother were scuba diving. And luckily a nice man took her into his office and showed her videos as a protective mother, what do you do? What do you do when you're not even allowed to see your children and you can't even explain anything to them about what um, Ros was talking about, about explaining about relationships, explaining about grief, explaining anger. When you never have that opportunity, what do you do? And there are too many of us in that situation as well. 
Thank you, Anita. So I'm going to pose this final question um, to Annabelle with regard to course of control of children. And you described the lack of access that your children have to you in terms of phone access when they're with their father. Can you talk about that and maybe other um, ways in which the the parent is um, using course of control of the children to continue to control you? Um, Yes. So my kids not only have no access to me, but they have no phone access at all. They can't call their friends. They can't call 911. You know, it's very, very controlling behavior. And these are two kids who are very social. They have a lot of friends. When they're with me, they're on the phone a lot. You know, they, they talk to their friends several times a day. And it's, you know, I think it's what's really held them together, knowing that they have that friendship. I mean, that they have that support. But when they're with him, they have none of that. Even on birthdays, they're not allowed to call me or, you know, or their friends. So I, you know, I was accused of parental alienation. And my case is kind of interesting because my ex tried to set me up for parental alienation accusations even before the children started to stand up to him. It really, you know, I really feel like in order to accuse mothers of parental alienation, it requires that fathers abuse or coercively control or somehow estrange and turn the kids against them. And I do believe that that is what some of these experts are telling dads to do. And I know that that sounds so out there. But when you think about the money involved and how these men with all eyes watching on them, watching them become more, more abusive, not less, you know, they do things the wrong way. They don't apply treatment for the kids properly. You know, it it almost seems like they're on purposely being bad parents. And the more you complain, the more that you, um, that you get accused of parental alienation realizing this, the kids and I don't complain. They tell me about all the things that he does to them. And we all know what he's doing. We just don't complain about it. The only exceptions is once when he put her in a chokehold, but the police did nothing. But generally, we we just don't complain. And it's unfortunate. I really don't know what to do. My kids, because they are older, they know what's going on. And so they're they're smarter. They know how to answer. They're careful about who they tell anything to or confide in you know they've learned that there's a lot of predatory people in in family courts and in cps and you know that's a very hard lesson for kids to learn that the people that they should rely on can't be trusted so annabelle thank you for that so this last question i'm going to pose to roz uh, to talk about sort of the traumatic bonds of being exposed to and living with an abusive parent. Um, And after this question, we're going to open it up to the question and answers. So Roz, uh, could you comment on that? Yeah, of course. Um, In terms of the, the children, what we often see as well is what we would call a traumatic bond with the perpetrator. And it's, it's similar to Stockholm syndrome, So the person that's hurting me is actually the person that's protecting me because that's my dad. And again, that becomes quite enmeshed in terms of that um, coercive control is, you know, it's a pattern of acts of assault, intimidation. You know, these perpetrators do it to everybody once they are trying to regain control. So again, these children develop these bonds that are we call traumatic. And actually, again, their belief systems being exposed to a perpetrator's behavior and belief system has an impact. It becomes normal, like I said earlier. 
So again, I think Anita talked about the perfect child, you know, often the perfect child is because in fear of what the consequences might be if I don't do well, or actually if I do really well, then, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get noticed for anything negative. So like a very, very good friend of mine always says, domestic abuse has no face. It happens to anybody, anywhere, anytime. And it is up to us to be able to educate and recognise these signs and ask the question, talk to women, talk to children in a way that they understand that, you know, whatever you talk about is going to be confidential unless we're worried about you. And if we're worried about you, we're going to do something, but it will be only to keep you safe and to keep people informed of that. But unfortunately, again, you know, from what we've heard today, very similar experiences of of lack of understanding, knowledge, you know, and a perpetrator can be anybody, you know. If there's one in four victims, there's one in four perpetrators. So, you know, we need to recognise that as well. And that is, again, a big part of, of the fight against domestic abuse. So what you're saying is beyond just the physiological consequences, the long-term impact of adverse childhood experiences on one's health, the higher risk of negative health outcomes, there's also a higher risk, you're saying, on um, the children growing up to have healthy relationships because they've normalized abuse, in other words, and maybe cannot recognize abuse or has a higher tolerance or not so clear boundaries that they can carry into adulthood. So let's move to the question and answers now. So Michelle, we're going to ask you if you can maybe just aggregate some of the common themes and questions into one. Uh, And if there's any particular question that was addressed to a particular panelist, uh, please um, address it to that panelist directly. Um, Is addressed to the uh, protective mothers, uh, protective moms. And the question is why are protective mothers revered in the animal kingdom yet pathologized in humans or family courts? So can we just have one person answer given the time? (laughs) I'm guessing we're not going to have enough time for everyone to answer. So is there anybody who would like to answer this specific question? Mary, could I just butt in there? Sure. I think it's because in the animal kingdom, we don't have men's rights activists or male supremacists. And animals try equally perhaps to protect their children or they leave the mothers to get on with it in the large majority of cases. Um, Humans have patriarchal society largely and lots of uh, well-funded men's rights activists. Right. And I just want to point out, thank you, Anita, for that, um, that we have actually written a piece to and and members who are uh, masculinity experts um, in the gender collective who have written and done research about this topic, masculinity. And the preferred reframing is to call MRA or men's rights activists, well, I'll put that in air quotes, a male supremacist, so that they are the equivalent of a white supremacist because men's rights imply that they don't have male power and male privilege. And activists um, implies that they are advocating for some social justice outcome like equality or or justice or um, ending oppression or violence. And in fact, they are not. They're trying to uphold their the status quo. So in terms of that, yes, we, we would like to make sure that the audience is aware of that. And 
and they that is true. It is a human phenomenon. But I also want to add that there's also in the subfield of ecofeminism, there's a big connection towards how people treat women and how people treat the planet and animals. And this power over model under patriarchy extends to all forms of beings that um, one can they might consider quote unquote subordinate um, or inferior. Okay, I'm going to turn it back to Michelle. What's the next question? So the next question is directed for Roz, and it really looks at the the trauma that children experience. So the question is, in terms of a child that might be improperly diagnosed, an improper ADHD diagnosis, any ideas on how those gets reversed, and how do you expose the trauma that a child has experienced, as opposed to having it mis, you know, misinterpreted for an ADHD diagnosis? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to actually just repeat that because your volume was going in and out, Michelle. So Roz, the question was addressed to you and the question was when a child is misdiagnosed uh with ADHD, which is um what trauma often is misdiagnosed under, um how number 1, how do you address the misdiagnosis to get the right treatment for the child? And number 2, how do you reverse the trauma or minimize the damage of the trauma? Uh, what are some of the treatment uh, modalities um, that can be helpful. Absolutely. So in terms of misdiagnosis, unfortunately, that is extremely common. And I think that there's, you know, a number of issues here in terms of professionals not recognising it. And also as the assessment process is taking place, the history of that family may not be known. And that might not be something that has been disclosed. It could be something that has happened in situ. So again, the, the, the partner may be at appointments. And often when you are in abusive situations, it's very, you, you look through a very different lens because actually what you're doing again is trying to protect your child, but also you'll be seeing these behaviours and they're not going to make sense to you. So, you know, I, I really do put the onus on professionals working in these fields that actually they understand and recognise that ADHD and, and post-traumatic stress have the same symptoms and to explore the abuse, the, the, the side where we might potentially be experiencing um, abuse and the signs, they're not always going to tell you, but do they always come to appointments together? Do you ever get to talk to that woman on their own? Schools, are they picking up on you know, any kind of a more subtle nuances around abuse with that child or the behaviours. Often children experience extreme behaviours in terms of emotions and physical acts potentially. And when they play that out, we have to remember these children are telling us something and we need to be able to recognise those signs. In terms of a reversal of that, I mean, it's very difficult. Again, once a clinical diagnosis has been made um, however you, you know it might be important to gain some local support there and and to look at kind of the situation every situation's different so you know I don't like to give blanket kind of advice but again that, the onus really for me is on professionals to recognize it and to be able to address it in terms of support for children post-separation therapeutic work play therapy art therapy movement, doing groups such as, you know, the groups that we run in recovery. I think for me, the most important thing for children is they've got a trust 
trusted adult in their life that they can talk to and that person is is checking in with them and asking the question the same way with a woman and explaining it. And children need to be educated about abuse and that what is happening in their home is not normal. So again, there's, you know, systematically we need to approach this subject very, very differently. Thank you. And I'm glad you brought up the trusted adult because um, in our post conversation email, there is a link for a documentary that was made in England um, where protective moms in the U.S. were interviewed. And it's called What Doesn't Kill Me. And in that documentary, they do discuss adverse childhood experiences. And one of the experts who talks about the trauma that abused children uh, undergo make it a point to to, um, reassure us that it can be minimized or reversed to the extent that um, there is a trusted adult present that the child can turn to while undergoing these experiences. Okay, so we have time for one more question, Michelle. There is one more question, and I think this is opened to the panel, and it really asks, how do you deal with courts when they refuse to deal with or recognize abuse and order the abuser high involvement in the child's life? So I'm going to ask Annabelle and Courtney to answer the, uh, this question. So Courtney, I'm going to start with you. You don't. I mean, that's, you know, all... All we can do is, is all we really have control of is our children and, and being that one person that is their trusted person, that is consistent, that is always offering this astronomical level of love that, you know, builds as much security as possible. I, I think that it's a hard place to come to, to realize that that sometimes is all that you can do. But at the same time, it can be looked at as an empowering part because as much as the abuser attempts to disrupt and pretty much destroy uh, an innocent child, I think that one thing they, that we have that is so unique is the animal kingdom motherhood that can never be taken from a child. And Courtney, I'm going to ask you, there was a quote that was part of our promos for our interview that I really thought resonated about what you do when, you know, when your child is exhibiting symptoms, um, you know, how you manage to maintain calm and poise, um, if you could sort of address that. Well, that's what I really wanted to follow up with on with Roz is, as a mother, you know, for me personally, of uh, five years, well, I would say more specifically, three years of my child coming to me and telling me he's hitting me, he's hurting me, he hits me with a stick, the stick's behind the door, um, he's touching my privates, you know, he tells me he's doing it for social reasons, all of these things to be in this position of knowing that you have to send the child back the next day. So you receive this information. And as a mother, you sit there and say, okay, if I react, then I'm going to scare my child. If I say, wow, this is really, really bad. This is wrong. Then I'm causing more confusion into my child because I'm sending him back into a place that is wrong. 
So it's, it's the most difficult thing is finding this middle road to say, wow, uh, thank you so much for sharing. I validate. This must be so confusing. How do we protect ourselves? I don't have to ever mention the father, the name, anything. It's, I, I focus on the issue at hand. What is occurring and how can you, you little six-year-old boy, protect yourself? Because if I don't, right, if I fall into this other category of being an alarmist and showing emotion, God forbid, you know, as, as mothers, then I'm an easy target for the PAS and the, you know, I'm coaching or I'm doing all of these other things. And so that's what I think with what Roz was saying is that moms are put into the most difficult situations because there is no help, right? The, the family courts are failing, the CPS is failing, and all we can do as moms is try to be that person that can heal as much as possible in a situation that we can't change. Thank you, Courtney. Uh, And Annabelle, I'll ask you the same question. So given the way that the courts are right now, you know, there's no accountability and it's um, populated by people who have a financial interest in prolonging your conflict and not believing mothers. What I've done is just not complained, but I have written online reviews about the professionals involved in my case, warning other women to, you know, to just say no if their attorneys recommend, you know, try to refer them to their case. And I keep my reviews very, very factual. And, you know, I have supported documents to support what I'm saying so that I'm not accused of defamation. So that's one thing that I do. And I try to um, get legislators aware of what's happening. But in terms of like actually trying to complain more about the abuse or trying to point it out to the courts themselves, it's, it's fruitless, you know, unfortunately. Thank you. So we are not going to have time for any further questions, but I want to now give each of the panelists an opportunity to just give one closing thought briefly before we close. So let's turn to Roz for a closing thought. Um, You know, it is completely unacceptable what is happening. That firstly, I want to address, but I also want to address how important it is that children are given a safety plan. And, you know, I'm happy to follow up with any anybody here around that with the children, because, you know, children need to know how to keep themselves safe as we do. So that could be potentially something that would be an area to explore, given your current situations. But the protective services should be protecting your children. And from what I hear, that is clearly not happening. So we're, we're going to give, um, at, at the end of the um, email, follow-up email, we're going to give everybody who's a panelist their contact information. And I just want to say, if anybody wants to reach out to Roz to you know contract with her services, um, train the trainer and implement the workshops that she's been you know, uh, deploying in England, please feel free to do so as well. I think we need to you know, learn from what they're doing there. And um, it sounds like a really successful program given the circumstances. So thank you, Roz. Um, I'm going to turn to Anita now for closing thoughts. Thank you, Terry. I think what I'd like to close with is just to remind people that the latest statistics show that in the US, if a woman raises allegations of abuse during any sort of custody case, in around close to 60% of cases, the father ends up with sole custody. 
This is not unique to the United States. This happens around the world in family courts. All the stories we've heard about family courts happen around the world. So in the US, it's particularly hard because of the financial aspects. There's not so much social welfare for, to help mothers. It's not that great in other countries either, but usually there is something. But just please understand it's not just in the United States. Sadly, this is happening all over the world. Far too many mothers, far too many children are suffering because of this. Thank and you. And to raise awareness. Thank you. And um, I'm going to turn to Courtney for a brief closing thoughts. Well, first of all, I think, thank you, Terry, um, because I think that your platforms are really contributing to creating many, many voices all over the world. And there's times when, as moms, we scream like animals in total confusion of how this could happen. But it's this shift of coming together and discussing uh, in an intellectual way of all of the things that we can add to each other and our stories that I think is is going to sh shift things to make change. I mean, I we're in this, there's a very big tipping point that is coming, I believe. And I, I'm just so thankful and grateful for this opportunity to share for me in a safe way that I hope can contribute to everyone else's stories so we can, you know, really make change. Thank you, Courtney. And final comment from Annabelle. Okay, um, I, I also believe that there is a shift that is coming. This is happening all over the world because of the AFCC, because of parental alienation experts. And I think that we really need to focus on their misconduct. You know, we just need to get rid of these people from family courts. They're, they're not doing their jobs. They're not protecting children. And, and the focus needs to be on what they're doing. And, you know, we need to shine the light on that. Thank you, Annabelle. So uh, I'd like to, just in summary, uh, thank all of our panelists who actually joined us from England, Anita and Roz. Thank you so much for staying up late and um, being part of the conversation despite a long, long week. I thank you to Annabelle and Courtney for having the courage to share your story, even with the threat of uh, retaliation. And thank you to Michelle for helping to coordinate our Q&A. Thank you to the attendees who've joined us for this conversation. Okay, thank you, Terry. Thank you, Terry, and thanks, Michelle. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.